Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Selt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. As you probably know by now, our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And of course, if you feel like rewarding yourself or supporting us, we now offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This is, of course, the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the gallant Megan Breed, Vivian Lay, Sam Parnell, and Michael Wolf. The first article for this week was titled Norepinephrine Dysregulates the Immune Response and Compromises Host Defense During Sepsis, out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. Sepsis is a leading cause of death worldwide, but in developed countries, it's much lower because we have good treatments and this is something that we've learned how to handle. A key feature of sepsis that I'm sure all of you are familiar with is the management of hypotension. For this, we have several things to reach for, and one of the most common that we reach for is norepinephrine. With alpha and beta effects, it does a good job of increasing cardiac output and clamping down on peripheral vessels. Recent evidence, though, has shown that our favorite vasopressor may have some off-target effects that aren't exactly helping our patients. And indeed, we can see that there may be some compromise of the immune system as a result of norepinephrine. So let's stretch out our basic science muscles and talk a little bit about that in this article. Norepinephrine may have some anti-inflammatory effects on human leukocytes. If we take whole blood from human volunteers, and then we stimulate that with bacterial antigens in the presence of norepinephrine. Then we see a decrease in the amount of TNF-alpha that's released, that's a pro-inflammatory cytokine. And there is an increase in the amount of IL-10, which is an anti-inflammatory regulator. So what mediates this response? Well, it seems to be that the anti-inflammatory response is a result of beta-2 adrenergic signaling. Since if we block that with beta blockers, then the effects of norepinephrine on TNF-alpha go away in these in vitro studies. More than that, these beta effects can also decrease metabolism in immune cells in vitro. Experiments measured decreased rates of oxidative phosphorylation, which is the cell's primary source of energy. And other experiments have shown that this can actually decrease their immunological capabilities. Moving on to a mouse model for this study, norepinephrine showed a dose-dependent reduction in pro-inflammatory markers and an increase in anti-inflammatory cytokines, just like we saw with the in vitro studies. Finally, these authors really did do their due diligence, that was fun to say, in 30 healthy male volunteers with a norepinephrine infusion of low dose at 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute for five hours prior to a bacterial antigen challenge. They took blood samples from these patients and showed a similar-ish trend as in the mice. There was an increase in the amount of IL-10, which we said was an anti-inflammatory cytokine, in the norepinephrine-treated patients compared with the placebo control. But no other cytokines were affected. The only other marker that changed was CXCL10, previously called IP10 as it was called in this article, which is a chemokine that has some pro-inflammatory responses. But when I only see one in six things measured that actually changes, my suspicions aren't all that high for a huge anti-inflammatory effect. 
Finally, the authors also did a prospective observational study of 195 ICU patients looking at TNF-alpha and IL-10 levels 24 hours after beginning norepinephrine infusions. What made this population interesting was that some of them had taken their home beta blocker medications recently, so the authors were able to compare with norepinephrine alone or having what they posited to be uh, the anti-inflammatory effects which are mediated through the beta-adrenergic signaling which is now blocked by the beta blockers. So in these patients they saw higher ratios of TNF-alpha over IL-10 when they were beta blocked, which they presume means there was more inflammation and they also think that this was better for their response. I saw no mention of changes in patient-oriented outcomes, however, in either of these populations. Also, it's really just assumption that more inflammation is necessarily better, since inflammation and the response to sepsis is the, what's causing this hypotension problem in the first place. But it bears mentioning that if you wanted to use something that didn't possibly have these effects, all of the in vitro studies and the mouse studies were repeated with vasopressin, and they found none of these effects. So norepinephrine is extremely widely used for sepsis, and it's doing a pretty good job. I'd have more to say about this study, let's be honest, if this were a journal club, but it's not, it's the journal feed. So instead, here's your spoonful. Norepinephrine has some signal towards dose-dependent immunosuppression, but I wouldn't be too skeptical of norepinephrine just yet from this data. These authors did little to prove that these immunomodulation effects were harmful in my opinion, but perhaps keep an eye out for this in the future as things develop. Next was the second article titled on Dancitron prescription is associated with reduced return visits to the pediatric emergency department for children with gastroenteritis out of the annals of emergency medicine. If that sounds a bit like deja vu to you, then that's quite all right, because we actually covered a very similar article in April about a smaller study that showed no reduction in ED bounce backs when on Dancitron was given as a home prescription for gastroenteritis. But how does that pan out in now a much larger study? So this was a retrospective study of 82,000 pediatric patients who were discharged with a diagnosis of gastroenteritis or vomiting. 8% of these patients had an IV bolus in the ER, 55% received ondansetron in the ER, and 12.4% got a prescription of ondansetron at discharge. Within 72 hours, almost 5% of these patients returned to the emergency department. But if patients received a home prescription of ondansetron, their odds of returning decreased by 16%, or an odds ratio of 0.84. Some factors that actually increase the odds of returning were being younger, receiving IV fluids or on Dancitron during their initial visit to the emergency department, or having radiographic studies done. So on Dancitron is decreasing the amount these patients represent, and thankfully there was no effect of home on Dancitron on returning with an alternative diagnosis. So we're not masking important indicators of maybe a more severe disease by reducing these patients' nausea and vomiting. In a spoonful, in this retrospective study, an ondansetron prescription sent along with your pediatric vomiting or gastroenteritis patients when you send them home decreased the 72-hour return visit rates and did not mask other diagnoses. With that, we move to the third article, Fractures of the Scaphoid out of the BMJ. One of the easiest wrist fractures to miss is that tricky little scaphoid. Even its name sounds a little bit squirrely to me, if I'm being honest. 
Misses are no good either. This bone is particularly at risk for avascular necrosis, and that can lead to non-union. So missing this fracture has some serious implications, since most of these non-unions will be symptomatic and require surgery. And on top of that, post-traumatic osteoarthritis is common and can decrease quality of life through chronic pain and loss of function. So common being common and our memories being as valuable as our memories are, let's go over the basics of this common injury outlined in this paper. The typical mechanism for this injury is the infamous foosh, fall on an outstretched hand, a proper Superman nosedive right into the concrete. But if you want to get technical, we can call it a forced hyperextension of the wrist. For all of these patients, they should get a careful examination for risk fractures, and this would include palpation at the anatomical snuffbox looking for tenderness. You should also palpate the scaphoid tubercle looking for tenderness, and then you should check for a positive thumb longitudinal compression test. These are actually quite good physical exam signs as well. Tenderness in the snuffbox is actually quite sensitive, but may have low specificity. If you do all these tests together though, within 24 hours of the injury, its sensitivity is 100%, with a 74% specificity. So at least you're not missing any of these fractures, and all these three tests together will only take probably less than a minute. But there's no way you're gonna do physical exam alone, so you're going to need x-rays. And by way of x-rays, you're going to want a four-view scaphoid series. This will include a PA view, a lateral view, an oblique view with wrist pronated to 45 degrees, and a PA view with wrist in ulnar deviation and the beam angled at 20 degrees. All of that being done though, x-rays are still only 80% sensitive in the first week, so your initial x-rays will not rule out a fracture. And if your suspicion is still high despite negative x-rays, probably because you did in such a good physical exam, let's be honest, consider doing an MRI early, because in the end this has been shown to actually have some cost savings and prevent unnecessary immobilization. When you do find a fracture, these patients will need immobilization and referral to an orthopedic specialist for follow-up. In a spoonful, scaphoid fractures are the most commonly injured carpal bone, and yet they're still often missed. A really good physical exam may help keep your suspicions high when radiographs are negative. The next article, the fourth article, was titled Spirometry Not Pain Level Predicts Outcomes in Geriatric Patients with Isolated Rib Fractures out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So it sounds a lot like a joke when we consider that a strong sneeze can actually cause rib fractures in our geriatric patients. These injuries are actually associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Recent Western Trauma Association guidelines even recommend admitting for monitoring all patients above the age of 65 with two or more rib fractures. Much of the evidence to back that suggestion, though, is muddied by concomitant injuries, and the evidence for single rib fractures is still quite limited. But there are things to guide us. A common complaint with rib fractures is this pleuritis-type pain, where patients have significant pain with deep breathing. And so some smart people thought to do pulmonary function testing to help predict outcomes in these patients. What role does this play in the geriatric population, though? And could this really lead to early discharge, maybe even from the emergency department? This was a prospective observational study of 86 patients evaluating forced vital capacity, FVC, forced expiratory volume in one second, which is FEV1, negative inspiratory force, NIF, P1, 
pain level, and grip strength as predictors of outcomes in patients over 60 years old who had three or more isolated rib fractures. So after adjusting for confounders, the FEV1 measured on day one was a predictor of both length of stay and discharge home, with a remarkable increase of 3% in the odds of discharge home for every percent increase in the FEV1% predicted. The only other predictor for home discharge was the age of the patient, younger being better, unsurprisingly. Back to FEV1, almost all patients with an FEV1 greater than 60% predicted were discharged home with a short length of stay. Unfortunately, these measures were not useful for following patients afterwards, though, as they did not change significantly over three days despite improvements in pain. Interestingly, pain actually had little impact on the potential for discharge and was not associated with lung volumes, but better pain control was associated with shorter length of stay. In a spoonful, bedside spirometry, specifically FEV1, can help predict outcomes for geriatric patients with isolated rib fractures and may help with admission and discharge decisions. Now, lastly, our fifth article titled Survival and Hemodynamics During Pediatric Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation for Bradycardia and Poor Perfusion Versus Pulseless Cardiac Arrest out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. Bradycardia is common in children and really isn't a good thing. It often progresses to pulseless arrest. But even if a pulse is present, CPR can actually help with hemodynamics, and that can be better than a heart that's beating too slow. This study was a prospective multicenter observational study in 11 ICUs over three years of 164 children with pre-existing arterial lines, which captured CPR events for pulseless cardiac arrest and bradycardia with poor perfusion. The study authors hypothesized and found, actually, that patients with bradycardia would have better outcomes. So while this was an ICU study, our author has nicely identified five clinical pearls for the ED. Pearl number one, bradycardia is common in young children. In this study, children less than one year old were more likely to present with bradycardia. Pearl number two, when you see a child with respiratory distress, anticipate that they may develop bradycardia with poor perfusion. Going forward, CPR events were just as common in bradycardia with poor perfusion as with pulseless electrical activity, with 90% overall survival though, and 22% of these survivors were because they were put on ECMO. So that leaves us with pearl number three. When things look really bad, consider ECMO. It could save a life. So then about half of patients presented with bradycardia got CPR and then lost their pulses. And these patients who progressed to loss of pulses during CPR had lower rates of return of spontaneous circulation, but did not show differences in the rates of survival with good neurologic outcomes compared to those who were never pulseless. And that gives us pearl number four. Don't abandon hope in your pediatric bradycardic patients who develop PEA during CPR. Now, patients with initial bradycardia and poor perfusion were more likely than patients who were always pulseless to survive to discharge at 84% for the bradycardic patients versus 37% for the pulseless patients. And they were also more likely to survive with good neurologic outcome at 50% versus 32%. And thus, our author makes the sort of logical stretch to recommend a fifth and final pearl. Starting CPR for bradycardic patients with poor perfusion before the loss of pulses is a good idea, and this is even part of PALS. 
Altogether, in a spoonful, bradycardia with poor perfusion is associated with better survival with favorable outcomes than pulseless cardiac arrest in critically ill children receiving CPR. Whew. And that's it for the articles for this week. I'm going to share a quick clinical pearl just as a break before we go into our rapid review. In this clinical pearl, I learned from a vascular surgeon just over the past week, and that's that if you have a patient who comes in with a diabetic foot or other bad foot ulcer, and there are maggots in the wound, rather than working hard to pick out and remove all of the maggots, what you can actually do instead is put their foot over a bucket, pour hydrogen peroxide over the foot, and all of the maggots will remove themselves from the wound quite quickly. Now, got that off my chest, we can go into our rapid review of what did we learn today. From the first article, we saw that in in vitro models, as well as in human studies, norepinephrine shows some dose-dependent immunosuppression. The clinical implications of this are not clear from this paper, but it would seem that vasopressin does not share any of these effects, as they are beta-adrenergically mediated. Next was the second article, which was a large retrospective study showing that home ondansetron prescriptions led to decreased 72-hour bounce-back rates in children with vomiting or gastroenteritis. After that, we talked about scaphoid fractures, which are the most common carpal bone fractures, usually because of a foosh. A good physical exam, especially in the context of negative x-rays, can help guide you towards an MRI, if that's necessary, to hopefully not miss this very common injury. From the fourth article, we looked at the geriatric population and pulmonary function testing for FEV1 levels, which may help with the decision for admission or discharge. And in FEV1, over 60% of predicted looks to be a good marker for discharge home with a short length of stay. And finally, from the fifth article, we saw that pediatric patients receiving CPR for initial bradycardia with poor perfusion fared better than those with pulseless cardiac arrest. But all hope is not lost. Consider ECMO in severe cases, and it may even be best to start CPR before they go pulseless. And that's it. That's all the articles for this week. Links to all the articles that we have summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.